okay to embrace your fears. It's okay to talk about your fears and your insecurities. And we all have those, right? I think that's, I think that's what I began to realize that I wasn't the only one that have, you know, that has these inner doubts or, um, yeah, all these insecurities about what I do. Hey everyone, I'm Yasunori, Nori and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. I want to welcome this week's guest, Rana El-Kailoubi, to our show today. Rana is an Egyptian-American scientist, innovator, author, and CEO. She co-founded the artificial intelligence company Affectiva and has pioneered a digital software that can read and analyze human emotion in real time. Rana grew up in Cairo, where she was raised, as she says, to be a quote-unquote nice Egyptian girl. She defied cultural expectations in both the tech world and in her native Middle Eastern heritage. She earned her PhD at Cambridge and postdoctorate at MIT and is working in a field of technology that is still overwhelmingly white and male. Rana has been recognized on Fortune's 40 Under 40 list and is one of Forbes' top 50 women in tech. However, before she broke ground as a scientist and founded her company, she broke the roles of what it meant to be an obedient daughter and later an obedient wife to pursue her own daring dream. Rana's personal journey overcoming self-doubt and embracing her ambition is an inspiration to all women to feel empowered and be the leader of their own life. Welcome to the show, Rana. Thank you for having me, Yasmin. Of course, I'm so excited to have you on and happy you're able to join us. There's just so much I want to dig into with your life journey. And I'd love to start from the beginning. So you grew up in Egypt and Kuwait, and you've mentioned that you were raised by a very strict father who valued tradition, yet on the flip side, had high expectations for his daughters and a mother who was one of the first female computer programmers in the Middle East. Can you share more about your childhood growing up? So I was born in Egypt. Um, both my parents are Egyptian. And, but shortly thereafter, my parents actually have an interesting story. They met uh, uh, in a computer programming class. So my dad taught COBOL programming. It's a kind of almost extinct programming language um, in the seven, very popular in the 70s. And my mom signed up to take this computer programming class. She had just graduated from college and was kind of interested in technology and so he hit on her <laughs> in the class and, and she, and he was like, will you go out with me? And she was like, no, I don't date. And he was like, okay, I'll propose to marry you instead. And that was how they ended up together. So we grew up in a house, you know, we were very comfortable with technology. My dad was always bringing kind of the latest and greatest gadgets to our house. I have two younger sisters um, and both my parents really were just adamant. They invested everything they had in our education. So they were really pro-education, sometimes even kind of against the rest of our family. Like I remember an uncle of mine um, kind of really challenged my dad. And he was like, you, have, you only have daughters. Like, why are you investing so much in their education? Like, put it in a house or a car or real estate or something. And I was horrified because I thought my parents would listen to my uncle, but thankfully they didn't. So very pro-education, really kind of ambitious um, parents, um, but at the same time, very traditional too. Like, you know, I wasn't allowed to date until I graduated college and uh, we had very strict curfews and just gender roles um, 
So it was kind of interesting marrying kind of kind of the conservative, con- yeah, conservative kind of bring- upbringing with kind of this message that you can be anything you want. So interesting. I'm sure it was, you know, quite the journey growing up in a more so traditional conservative Middle Eastern household, but your family still empowered you to be exposed to the outside world and see, you know, life in different ways. So I'm sure that was interesting growing up and trying to marry both of those worlds. So growing up, your initial aspirations were always to stay in Egypt with your family and become part of faculty in college. What shifts happened in your life that made you realize you wanted to do more? Yeah, I, I, I love, I still do love teaching. And so my career goal was to um, become faculty and to become faculty. I was like, okay, I have to go abroad, get my PhD and then come back and teach. Um, and so I did that. I went to Cambridge University for my PhD. And while I was there, I just discovered my passion for research and specifically building emotionally intelligent machines and kind of unlocking all the different applications of it. And, and that led me to MIT. So I joined uh, an MIT professor who I'd been following for years. And, you know, she became my mentor and role model. Um, and while I was at MIT, I realized that there was so much commercial interest in the technology. And um, the tipping point for me was realizing, okay, I have an opportunity to bring this to scale to the whole world. And, 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 and so we started the company. So you're in Cambridge and you mentioned that, you know, your now co-founder was initially a mentor of yours. I'm sure people listening today are curious as well, but how did you get connected with your mentor and, you know, develop that relationship that eventually led you to start a company because it's so tough to find a partner to start businesses with. So I'd love to hear more about how you two connected. Absolutely. And I would say serendipity. So I was, you know, towards the end of my PhD at Cambridge and we got this, we literally got an email, a, a, a kind of a lab-wide email that this MIT professor called Rosalind Picard is going to visit because she's giving a talk and she wanted to meet and greet some of the students. And she created a calendar where we had 15-minute slots and we could sign up. And so I signed, I took one of these 15-minute slots and we ended up chatting for almost an hour. And I prepared so much for that meeting. I thought about what I was going to show her and talk to her about my work, but also what I was wearing because I wanted to be like hip and kind of, you know, creative, but at the same time formal. And we just ended up hitting it off. And she invited me to join her lab at MIT, which was for me a dream come true, not without trade-offs. And we can talk about that family trade-offs, but, but, but it was, but, you know, it was an amazing professional opportunity career-wise. And, and that's how we ended up partnering. Wow. I love that story and how, you know, you talk through, it was nearly serendipity. I'm sure you weren't expecting to start a company with your mentor that you met with through a 15 minute uh, meeting. So that's great to hear because I feel like all of us, you know, sometimes try to force certain situations in your life and it just shows, you know, sometimes the unexpected can really be the, the most beautiful thing. So at the time, I believe you were newly married and you were and your husband was in Egypt and you were going to school in Cambridge and then you ended up going to MIT. So what was that experience like for your family commuting between, you know, Boston and Egypt? Actually, I was new. I was newly married. So I got married and literally a few months later, I started my PhD at Cambridge. And so I, pa- you know, new bride, I packed my bags and I was like, okay, see ya. <laughs> 
because he had to stay back in Egypt uh, to run his software company. Uh, so we had a long distance relationship for about five years. During that time, I had my first uh, child, my daughter, who's now 17. Um, and then, and then when I moved to MIT that I was commuting back and forth between Cairo and Boston, um, which was also really challenging. So I, I, you know, it it was really tough. And this is when I realized that a lot of the work I do can improve virtual communication and, and virtual connections. But yeah, I mean, I mean, I think it hurt, it hurt ultimately all of this hurt by marriage. So we're not, you know, we're not together anymore. Um, yeah. yeah. And at the time, so when you were newly married, going to Cambridge, what did your family and your husband think at the time? Were they supportive of you pursuing your passions or what was that like? So my parents had always dreamed of me becoming faculty and kind of getting, getting my doctorate. So on the one hand, they were supportive, but they also were like, what? You're just, you're a married woman now. You can't just leave like that. And so both my parents and my in-laws were against me going to get my PhD. And my husband at the time, to his credit, he was like, you know, this is your dream. I'm not going to stand in your way. You should go. And even when I had my daughter during my PhD, I thought of just quitting and coming back home. And he was like, no, you can't take a break because if you take a break, you're never going to finish this thing. Stay and get it done. So he was really supportive, which is quite unusual for yeah. men in the Middle East, actually. <laughs> right? Totally. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's very rare. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think he was really kind of supportive that way. But I also felt like over the years, it, it created a lot of contempt. And he just ultimately, it did hurt our marriage. And he didn't feel like he was a priority in the relationship. I was just busy. I, I just assumed that we had a great relationship. And I was focused on children and career. And just assume that the relationship would just be there. And, and that was a mistake. I'm sure that was quite the learning experience looking back in hindsight. And I want to acknowledge you for just being so open and vulnerable about your journey with us. And at that point in your life, you said that your focus was really on your children and your career. And you ended up getting a divorce and moving your family, your two kids to Boston permanently. I'm sure that was not an easy period in your life. How did you build that courage to make such a massive move to a completely different country without any family? Yeah. So when when the marriage basically started falling apart and I was still doing the commute between Cairo and Boston, I just at some point I was like, you know what? My company's based in Boston. My work is all in Boston. I'm going to take the kids and, and move there. And it was, you know, and again, my parents and my in-laws were like, you are nuts. Like you're taking a big risk. You're going to fail at work. Your kids are going to be miserable. I, and I journal a lot. I actually recommend that to people. Um, so I go back and read through my journals through this time. And there was a lot of fear, a lot of fear. I was just really scared to death that I would mess up everything. Um, but for me, it was this, the passion around what I do and this deep conviction that there will be a lot of opportunities for my kids here in the United States. And, and, um, and we just powered through it. 
and it was wow the fact that you still did this move despite you know your family back at home not being supportive at all and you still doing it with all this fear that you had inside you it's it's just so impressive and i think it's also helpful to know what how you manage that fear and you talked about journaling you know i'm sure if you were to look back now and read you know what you were writing and all that fear you were writing at the time I'm sure you would kind of laugh because your life has become just so much better than I'm sure even your own expectation. So I think that's just so amazing to even hear. And, you know, I read an article that you wrote where when you did that move officially, it was the first time you became financially independent. You grew up where your dad was always in that role and then your husband. So can you walk us through what that was like to really for the first time, be in control of your own finances as a single mom. Yeah. And again, I, I mean, I, I, I imagine some of your audience will, will relate to that, um, even though I have a PhD and I'm like really, you know, very, very well educated. I was actually financially illiterate for many years because I was just relying on these key male figures in my life to make all of the financial decisions for, for me. But then when I got divorced and I moved to the United States, basically on my own with my kids, I had to, I had to like really kind of get on track. Right. And, um, in 2016, which is the year when we became American citizens, I also bought my first house. And I remember, I mean, this sounds really lame, but it's true. Somebody said, Oh, you should, instead of renting, you should, you know, mortgage, like do a mortgage. And I was like, what's a mortgage? <laughs> I didn't yeah. even know what that was. Right. Um, so it's been a real learning curve and I, and I really believe that, you know, women should become financially literate very early on. Like I'm teaching my kids all of these concepts that I was not exposed to because I think it's so important because as a, as a financially independent woman, you don't just make decisions on your, on, on your and your family's behalf you can be philanthropic. You can, you can, you know, there's a lot of impact that you can do with, with this uh, financial independence. So I'm a huge advocate of that. Me too. And I think as women, we don't talk enough about it and it's shocking. I mean, your story is so common with so many women that I've talked to. And really one of the main reasons I wanted to start this podcast, you know, I want women to gain that awareness of, of money and their financials and feel comfortable talking about it because it's so important. And you know what too, I grew up kind of, it's almost a taboo to talk about money, right? Like, like you don't talk about money. And then I was running this company and raising millions of dollars of funding, yet I didn't know what a, you know, what credit, a credit score was or what a mortgage was. And I felt really bad even asking because I felt like it would be shameful. Like I felt, sh you know, shame that I didn't know any of this stuff. So I do agree with you that a, a very open conversation is the way to go here. Thousand percent. And you briefly touched upon raising money. I'd love to switch gears and talk more about that. So Affectiva has raised, I want to say around 60 million in venture funding. And I'm sure that was not an easy feat, uh, especially with top tier venture capitalists. But what was your experience like raising money as two women scientists in, you know, a male dominated industry? Short answer is hard. <laughs> uh, so yeah, Roz Picard, who, um, the MIT professor I was mentioning, she ended up uh, being my co-founder and, um, we, uh, we went, we, I mean, we 
our early round of funding, we went to um, the Sand Hill Road. We did a Sand Hill Road show, basically. And we met with almost like 40 different investors. And they were all predominant, actually literally all of them, kind of older white guys. There were zero women and zero people of color, right? And here I was, I used to wear the hijab at the time too. So very clearly Muslim, two women scientists, and we were pitching an emotion company. (laughs) So speak of like totally outside of the investor's comfort zone. Um, So it was hard. We all... We almost always got a lot of fascination and intrigue in in the work we're doing, but it was just, yeah, totally outside of what they were used to seeing. So it was hard, but we managed to raise money from top tier investors and we've raised over $50 million of venture and strategic funding. And um, it still strikes me though, how very few female investors there are. Um, That's another area that I feel like we need a lot more work. Yeah, for sure. And what advice you said it was so difficult. So as a woman listening right now who understands some of the hurdles she might face, you know, raising funding, what advice do you have for them? Because clearly you ended up, you know, making it and and continuously raising raising money for your company. I'd say, number one, um, be credible, be an expert in what you do. And that speaks for itself. Um, Number two, there's now a lot more diverse investors and, and, and I've been prioritizing getting money from these types of investors that really put value on diversity and they're a lot more inclusive. So for example, I'm part of an organization called All Raise and we focus on female founders and female partners. Um, so, you know, be a mem- become a member in All Raise and you'll get access to that network, which is awesome. And then the third, I would say, just like you'll meet a lot of people who won't get your idea or who'll think it's impossible to do. And, you know, a lot of naysayers, just ignore the naysayers. Yeah, especially if you're creating something new. A majority of people are going to think you're crazy, right? I mean, you should just set that expectation up for yourself if you're trying to do anything different. So when you were at MIT, you had mentioned that you started getting commercial interest on this technology that you were working on. At what point did you realize that this could be a real business? And how did you think through going down the venture capital route for funding when you were raising money for your company? Yeah. So so the project that brought me over from Cambridge to MIT was essentially my technology kind of reads facial expressions. And the idea was to apply it to help autistic kids. So it was a very autism-focused government grant that brought me over to MIT. But being at MIT, twice a year, we would invite all of these companies uh, to come see the technology. And it was called Demo or Die. We had to like really show a demo of the technology. And these Fortune 500 companies would say, oh, like, have you thought about applying it on automotive or market research or like Bank of America wanted to use it in customer experience and Pepsi wanted to test their latest products, right? So I kept a logbook and I initially thought that the solution was to just expand our research group and hire 10 more PhD students to, to kind of do the work. And the lab director at the time, Frank Moss, he said, actually, this is a commercialization opportunity. This is not research anymore. You now have, you know, you you could create a company to service these asks. Um, And my initial reaction was like, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm going to become faculty. Like don't mess with my faculty plans. Right. But then I thought about it and I got excited by this 
opportunity to take something I'm very passionate about and bring it to the whole world globally. Right. Um, so I, I, I believe, like, I think it's important to build these early customers. Um, in our case, it was really critical to our spinning out and they, they became our first customers actually. Yeah. That's incredible. And I think there's really two key themes in your story. And the first one is just having the power of a mentor or someone around you, like the lab director for you at the time that told you, you know, what you're working on could be a potential business. And I think sometimes we might not think in a certain way, or we have certain expectations for our next steps. And it's just always good to get other people's perspective. And sometimes it allows you to think in different ways. So I loved hearing that. And then the second one really is, you didn't get overwhelmed about starting a business. You really focused on those initial customers that you had and you didn't get nervous or overwhelmed on, you know, really building and scaling a company. So I think that's just two things that really resonated with me from your story. Yeah. I mean, back to your first point, I talk about that in in my book. Um, I feel like I outgrew my dreams and people often don't think about that, right? We talk about like pursuing your dream. But at some point I was like, okay, that's not my dream anymore. I have an even bigger dream. And, and, and unfor- I mean, I fortunately or unfortunately, I keep running into that. I keep just coming up with bigger and bigger dreams. And I think that's okay. Wow. I love that. You know, really having bigger and bigger dreams and knowing that your goals can always be a moving target. And it's been beautiful to see in your own life, just how you've kind of progressed and always achieve these large goals that you're set for yourself. So I think that's just a good reminder for all of us. So switching back to the early days of Affectiva, there's actually a story that I would love for you to share with our listeners today, where when you were fundraising in the early days, your son was around six months and you had to bring him to a really big meeting that you had. Can you share with us that story? Yeah, that was on that Sand Hill Road show in the Bay Area. And I live in Boston and I don't have much family in, in, in the United States. All of my family are back in Cairo. Um, so I took Adam with me to, to the Bay Area and I had lined up this babysitter. And this one morning she called and she said, I'm not feeling well. I, you know, I can't take Adam. And I was like, what? Like, <gasps> you know, we had lined up these meetings. Like we took us months to line them up. Yeah. And for people who don't know Sand Hill Road, it's just a very prominent area in Silicon Valley with all the top tier investors. So it's a big deal to be able to get meetings on that with right. those investors. Get on their calendar. Exactly. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to cancel. So I decided to just put Adam in his car seat and I took him with me and I walked into the investor's uh, um, office and I saw a, a young woman kind of on the front desk. And I said, can you take care of my son? And I literally handed her over Adam. And I just walked into the pitch uh, meeting room um, and just like prayed to the universe that Adam behaves. You know, he was like six or seven months at the time. Um, And I think this is kind of an example. It's just one example of my entire life where I've had to blend family and work. Like I, I, I think balance is a misnomer. It's more about how do you blend the two and just make it work. I just made it work. Yeah, balance is a difficult word, but I really enjoyed the way you described how you blend your family and your work. You know, what tips do you have for mothers who are listening today that are trying to do a better job managing both their work life and their family life? I would say, first of all, just be kind to yourself and don't shy away from, I mean, I have two kids and I am proud of them. I love them and they're very much part of, 
this journey with Affectiva. And so I talk about them a lot. If I have challenges, um, you know, when, when we all started the online learning, I also hosted two boarders at home. And so I talked about that at work, right? And that made me a lot more relatable and human. And it, I think it, gave, it gives permission for people to reciprocate to and be vulnerable back. It's important. Um, so I think that's one advice. And then the other is just, again, like recognize that we're all, you know, working and make, trying to make it work from home. And it's okay if you're a toddler. I mean, we have a lot of younger people at the company and they'll just show up with their kids on their lap and it's fine. I just say, hi, you know? Yeah, and I also read in another interview that you did that really having your kids involved and being transparent with them about the business shows them the value of leadership, perseverance, and resilience. So it's pretty incredible that you engage them and blend them with every aspect of your business. Yeah, and they, they've become you know they're older now my daughter's 17 and my son is 11 and they'll call me out on stuff right they'll overhear me kind of on a meeting and they'll say mom like you were really mean there <laughs> right yeah and then we have all these conversations around even even with um kind of the systemic injustices and, and black lives matter over the last few weeks we've had a lot of conversations internally like mm-hmm. around our dinner dinner table on how we as a family what can we do as a family, but what can I do as a leader and as a CEO? And and they've been really, really wonderful confidants and, and contributors to that discussion. That's so beautiful. I actually had seen your daughter on your Instagram. I am so impressed by her and just how evolved she is for a 17 year old you mentioned, right? Right. She's, she's super impressive. So it just shows, you know, you can run an amazing business, be an involved mother, and it's possible <laughs> to do both. I think so. it's hard, but it's, it's definitely possible. Yeah. So I would love to go back to the company. One thing that was interesting to me was how you weren't a CEO early on when you started the company. And you kind of had some doubts about yourself when, you know, the role opened up and people were looking to you to take that leap, which you eventually did. But can you walk us through that journey of you thinking you can't necessarily do that role to now, you know, leading the position and doing very well as a CEO? Yeah, when when we first spun out, um, we decided um, to hire a seasoned business executive to be the CEO of the company. And um, he was the CEO for about four years. And my role at the time was the chief technology officer. I was CTO. So I ran our R&D. And then he decided to move on. And so the question became, okay, who's going to be the next CEO? And a few uh, board members said, well, Rana should be because it's her company. She knows the technology, et cetera, et cetera. And I remember just thinking, I've never been CEO before. I don't think I can do this. And so I didn't sign up for it. At the same time, our head of sales, who had also never been CEO, he said, ah, I'll do it. And he he took the job. So he became CEO and he was CEO for a couple of years. And I just had, I mean, I I, I just, one, one day, it was after my TED Talk in 2015, I came back to the office and I was like, what am I doing? Like, I'm, already, and I Googled, like, what are the responsibilities of a CEO? And I created a bulleted list. And basically, I was doing the job. I was evangelizing the technology. I was raising money. I was running the majority of the, the company because we're majority R&D. And I realized I was already doing the job. I just didn't have the courage to really kind of ask for the title. So I went to him and I said, Hey, you know, I think we should be co-CEO. 
And he said, uh, that's a really bad idea. So then the more we talked, I was like, you know what? I actually want to be the CEO. And he was gracious enough. We were able to work it out and we took it to the board and it was a unanimous vote. And the team was so excited about it all. And it just made me realize like I was the biggest obstacle in my own way um, because of all these inner doubts. Um, and and, I, and I, I guess my advice, you know, to anybody who's listening is just don't be your own biggest obstacle. Like don't be your own Debbie Downer. (laughs) It's amazing that you even felt comfortable to have those discussions with the existing CEO at the time. I was very outside of my comfort zone. What did that feel like to have a discussion that was completely outside your comfort zone? You know, I had a mentor and he said, we were talking and he said, you really want to be CEO? And I said, I would love to, but there's no way on earth this is going to happen. And he said, visualize it. He actually encouraged me to journal about it and just imagine the world where I was CEO. And the more I did that, the more I internalized it. And so it was really about my changing my my mindset and my frame of reference. But I did that with the help of a mentor. And so, I, again, I can't underscore enough the importance of having just a few people who really are cheerleaders for you and really support you. I think that's so critical. That's so helpful to hear how, you know, your mentor really encouraged you to visualize it. And that made you feel a little bit more comfortable to have such a difficult discussion. And now being a leader and CEO of a pretty large business, how do you coach the women that report to you on their confidence and really helping them build the courage to take certain risks within the company? I see that all the time. Um, I don't want to, I don't like overgeneralizing, but I honestly see that all the time where women will wait until they check 150% of the boxes before they raise their hand. And men will just check maybe 30% of the boxes and and raise their hand. And so I I call out, you know, females on my team and I'll say, hey, I think you're ready to take this on. And they'll be like, oh, well, but I didn't do this before. I'm not so sure. I'm like, go for it. So a little nudge often helps. Um, and, and just highlighting um, success stories. So when we when when you know our female rock stars do something amazing, I make sure to highlight that and and yeah and, and give them credit. I think that boosts confidence as well. You know, the other thought I have too is, and I, I see that a lot, and I actually I'm very guilty of that. I will often just assume that people are going to see the hard work, I my hard work, and they're going to like just you know, give me that promotion. Well, guess what? No, you actually sometimes have to self-advocate and that is so important. And it's a skill, right? Right, that's so true. And I think we can all do a better job advocating for ourselves and feeling more comfortable talking about our accomplishments. And it's interesting, last week, we actually had an interview with Dana Trout. She's the founder of Healthy Kombucha. And she mentioned that, you know, despite her being a huge proponent of promoting others in her team, she realized as a CEO, she was getting underpaid relative to her own peers. And she would never really thought about it herself. So it took her seven years in the business to even come to that conclusion. And going back to your statement, you mentioned that this is something you are still working on. Do you have any stories that you could share with us today about that? I mean, I think for the longest time, I've, I was underpaid. I was underpaid. And I didn't think to, I mean, I guess I didn't, I didn't even think about that, right? I didn't think to make a comparison and and like gather data to really find out where I was. Um, And I never asked for promotion until very recently. I mean, I'm, 
even when I stepped into my CEO role, it was only a couple of years ago when I was like, okay, I really need to, again, as I started thinking about financial independence, I was like, I need to ask for things. So I've been pretty, you know, it's still hard for me to be honest. Um, so I probably don't do it as often as I should. Um, but I think it's really important and just, just come to the table, um, with data, right? Like here is, here's what somebody in my position gets paid. Here's the comp structure. And here's why I'm kicking ass, to be honest, right? And just come with like, come prepared with bullet points. Don't be apologetic about it. Yes, such yeah. great actionable advice for anyone listening today. And to your point, really coming in with the supporting data, I think just makes me feel more comfortable and seems like, you know, you have armor when you're going into a meeting. So I think that's great advice. So shifting gears a little bit, you know, given the environment that we're in right now with this pandemic and as someone who's leading a big organization, what advice or tips do you have for someone who's looking to maintain a good culture and really the productivity during the time period that we're in? I think that's actually the hardest part about being virtual because I can't see the team and I can't get a sense of, um, you know, the level of stress or level of engagement or motivation. But I found that leading with empathy, so just acknowledging that everybody has their own issues and challenges and sometimes you know, I'll reach out to somebody on our team who has really young kids and I'll say, hey, I recognize that you've got like two babies at home. Must be hard. I'm thinking of you. Um, or somebody who's alone, right? A young person who's just living alone at the moment. And I'll say, hey, I know that it's tough to be alone thinking of you. So empathy is really incredibly powerful. But marrying that with productivity and like aggressive goals, like we literally had our hands on deck meeting this morning. And we do what's called the rock star nomination. So if somebody goes above and beyond and demonstrates our core values as a company, we give them a rock star nomination. And we had about 60 rock. Like it was just crazy because wow. people are so fired up ar around some big key milestones that we're working towards. And um, yeah, so I think people want to feel productive. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And you know, you had mentioned just how for you and your co-founder, how important it is to always stand by your goals and your values and your ethics. And that just reminded me of a story that you had mentioned where you guys were really in a cash crunch in your business and you had a contract, I believe a government contract that came on your table. Can you share more about just that, ex that experience and kind of why it didn't fall into the ethics of your company? Yeah, so our technology is basically kind of a, a, a spin-off of facial recognition. So we do emotion recognition technology, lots of applications in automotive and mental health, but also security and surveillance. So when we started Affectiva, Roz and I said, okay, where are we going to draw the line? And we decided on a number of core values to help us make these decisions, like respecting people's privacy, consenting people. Um, not using it where it can discriminate against certain minority groups, etc. So fast forward a few years, we had raised a little bit of money and it was about to run out. So we were raising more capital, but we were literally like two months away from not making payroll. Um, so I, you know, I was concerned about us just kind of not existing anymore. Right. And then we get this call from the, um, venture arm of an intelligence agency. And they said, we'll give you about $40 million on condition that you pivot the company to do surveillance work. 
and I just felt like it was so not in line with our core values. Um, and we turned it away knowing that we were taking a risk um, and we may not be able to raise any more money for the company and we might just run out of gas altogether. But I just couldn't imagine myself like doing this day in, day out. So anyways, we turned that money away and we were able to raise uh, other funding from investors who really share our core values. So it all worked out. Wow. I'm sure as a founder, that was not an easy decision to make, especially when you only had two months worth of cash left in your bank account and you rejected $40 million worth of funding. But, you know, really to be clear about your values and ethics and business, I think is just important to talk about. So I want to pivot a little bit as someone who is leading a growing business, has two kids, you decided on top of all of that to write your own book, Girl Decoded. I would love to hear more about the motivation on writing it. So initially, I really wanted to write about the technology, like why emotion AI, what are the applications, what are the ethical and moral implications? And and um, as I started talking to my publisher and my editor in particular, he was like, oh, so tell me your story. And I started talking about my background and how I ended up in the in the U.S. And he was like, that's the book. There's something really powerful about your story. And so the, the book ended up being this kind of interweaving of my personal story and the story of the technology. Um, it is a memoir. Um, and now I just, I found that it's been this conversational conversation opener. Um, it's allowed me to connect with people I, I hadn't connected with before, start new conversations, really honest conversations. And my goal is to just inspire and motivate others. And you're definitely doing that. And I think just really having this real and open and honest conversation about your entire life trajectory is incredibly empowering for any woman that's listening. And I'm excited that you wrote the book. We'll absolutely share that in our show notes as well for anyone who's interested in learning more. And, you know, I actually had listened to another interview you did about your book, Girl Decoded. And one thing that you had mentioned is as someone who's leading an emotion AI company, you weren't always necessarily comfortable sharing your own emotions. Can you talk to us about your own journey of acknowledging and listening to your own feelings? Yeah, it has really been a, a, a personal journey of about 20 years, right? Because I grew up in a family where, you know, typical Middle Eastern family, uh, very... Um, my, you know, work ethic was like the number one. We all worked really, really hard and there was no nonsense allowed. Right. So um, I remember when I was a kid and we had to evacuate because of the Iraqi, Iraq, Kuwait, Gulf War. Um, there was just very little emotion. Like we didn't really I didn't really embrace my emotions. And that happened over and over throughout my career. And it's only been recently when I started sharing very openly about my divorce and about my moving to the US, um, that I realized that in being vulnerable, it creates more of a authentic human connection with others. And it allows for this incredible moment of vulnerability. Um, and I don't know. And so I, I, I started doing that and, and I made a commitment to write this book very openly. I mean, my mom read the initial draft and she was like, what? You're going to talk about our family? Like all our, all of our I know. Were they comfortable with that? Especially as a Middle Eastern family. <laughs> she's horrified, but I, <laughs> she's fine now. But 
Um, but it, it, it did take a lot of courage. Um, but, but I think there's, there's power in that. And, and again, one of the messages I want people to take out of the book is that it's okay to embrace your fears. It's okay to talk about your fears and your insecurities. And we all have those, right? I think that's, I think that's what I began to realize that I wasn't the only one that have, you know, that has these inner doubts or, um, yeah, all these insecurities about what I do. Yeah, for sure. And similar to you, I grew up in a Middle Eastern family where good work ethic is incredibly encouraged. And it's funny because we're so expressive, but from an emotional standpoint, I don't think it's as tuned in until, you know, I really got older and became more comfortable with how I feel and what I want. And there's really a sense of freedom when you can get to that point. So I love how that's a theme in your own life and how you're expressing all of that in your book. I'm, I'm definitely glad that someone's talking about this. Thank you. I mean, I guess that's the other thing too. Um, as an, as a tech entrepreneur, um, from the outside, it can feel very glamorous, right? we're always in the press and we're raising money and da da da, and it looks amazing, but actually it's like an emotional roller coaster. Some days are amazing. A lot of days it like really is hard and it sucks. And I wanted people to know that I brought, I just really wanted it to be honest. And I think we need to have more of these honest conversations. For sure. And like you had mentioned, I mean, entrepreneurship is an emotional roller coaster. Like you need mental health is so important in the whole process. I mean, how do you kind of push through those ups and downs and not let your ego get in the way? Um, first of all, I think being an entrepreneur is the ultimate like humility experience, right? <laughs> it's like an exercise in being humble, right? It really humbles you as a, as a human. Um, because you get you get you get a lot of rejections, whether from business partners or investors or right. It's just really tough. Um, yeah, I, but I, I feel like for me, it's and I've had to learn that the hard way. Um, I have to prioritize self-care. I didn't always do that. Um, but making time to sleep well, eat well, exercise. I love doing Zumba. Oh, Zumba. That's your yeah. thing. <laughs> that's my thing. Yeah. <laughs> I often joke, okay, if if this whole business thing doesn't work out, I'll just pivot to being a Zumba instructor and it'll all be fine. Yeah, (laughs) with some AI technology, it'd be like the best Zumba out there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but I think at least it's great that you have a regimen that works for you because I think as leaders, we can always forget to take care of ourselves because we're so busy. And I feel like taking time to do some self-care and to take care of your own self is important because you'll just show up even better for your family and your team. So for our closing question, I'd love to get your perspective on wealth. Wealth means so much more than money and everybody has their own definition of wealth. What does it mean to you? I would say wealth for me is um, is the ability and the bandwidth to, to give back. I've been so fortunate in that people have supported me throughout my career and they've taken a risk on me, right? Like Roz, who took me at her lab at MIT, she took this Egyptian kind of scientist, Muslim scientist and she, she took a risk. And I, I, I want to be in a position where I can take more risks on more people um, and, and hopefully make a difference in their lives and paths. I love that. So beautiful. And to your point, everybody, even for me, getting to where I am, so many people have taken a risk. So to give back and show that same path for others is just so beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Rana, for sharing all these amazing gems for our listeners. I'm so glad you were able to join us today. 
Thank you for having me. This is wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. To stay updated on new episodes or join our private community, go to BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. I'll see you next week. And until then, remember, you're always in charge of your own destiny and it's never too late to start your own empire.